Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for the, the great salvation that has been imputed to us by faith in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gift of your Son and of eternal life, Lord, and that you saved each one of us knowing uh, where we've come from, what we've done, and, and also what we would do. Lord, you saw each one of our days before any of them was lived out, and yet you still chose to have mercy on us, even knowing uh, things about us that we don't even know about ourselves. And so we just come to you this morning with grateful hearts, but also with humble hearts, knowing that you are our Father, you are the potter, and that we are the clay, Lord, that, uh, that, that we can do nothing of ourselves. Your word says that the flesh profits nothing, Lord, and we know that in us dwells no good thing. And so we come to you this morning, Lord, our, our Father, our potter, our shepherd, and we would pray that you would just fill each one of us right now with your Holy Spirit, that you would manifest yourself to us in a fresh and living way, that you would give us your love, Lord, that we would drink of the water of life, that your love would just wash over us right now, that you would give us a, a sense of, of it, Lord, that we would understand it and comprehend even just a little how much you love us, Lord, and, uh, and, and to know the plans that you have and to see, Lord, things that are invisible. And so we just pray, Father, that you would take us in your hand this morning and and take this time, Lord, we pray that you would just cultivate that call that you have on each one of our lives. We pray that you would raise us up, that we could be men of God, that we could be glorifying to you, that we would be uh, examples to our families and to uh, our, our co-workers, our society, Lord, of what it means to be a Christian, to have Christ living in us. And so we ask you, Father, to just bless this time. Just as you took the five loaves and the few fish, the, the small amount, Lord, and you made it great, and you made it eternally impacting, we pray you do the same with this morning, Lord, as though it's just one Saturday, Lord, in a sea of days and hours. But, Lord, take what we hear and what we experience and what we say and, uh, and our interactions this morning, and, and, Lord, let them bear much fruit. I pray that the things that we hear today, Lord, would carry us for the rest of our lives, that they would never leave us, Lord. And that, that we would be inspired to seek your will, to, to grow, to do your will. Lord, we just thank you so much. And so we ask you, Lord, please, draw near to each one of us. We pray you'd forgive us of all of our sins, that the power of your blood would just come. And even right now, Lord, I just pray, I just, I, I just ask you, Lord, that, that right now, Lord, you'd wash each one of us. And, and, and right now, Lord, we just take a moment of silence and... and uh, and, and right now, men, I just encourage you, just for the next 40 seconds, we'll sit in silence, just confess your sins to God. Not out loud, you know, but, but let the blood of Christ. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us. So take 40 seconds, repent, confess your sins before the Lord. Father, your word says that nothing is hidden from your eyes, that all things are naked and open before him with whom we have to do. And so, Lord, we pray that you would cleanse us fully right now, that our sin would be cast as far as east is from the west, that the power and the grip of it would be broken in our lives, that we would have 
no vice, that there would be no guile, nothing, Lord, defiling. And so please, Lord, we thank you so much for the cleansing that your mercies are new every morning. Wash away our guilt, our stain. Wash away our shame and our reproach. And let us have fruitful and abundant lives. Thank you, Lord. Bless this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, where do you open to this morning? We're gonna, do you have a notebook? I would get one if you don't have a notebook. Uh, we're, we're starting something new. Uh, it's not new. It's just kind of a, our direction, our, where we're going from here. We're going to take a look for, you know, who knows how long, but we're going to look at the major doctrines of the Bible. Um, and, and so we, we won't have maybe a, a specific text like verses 18 through 30 that we're going to go through, but there'll be a lot of verses. And so a notebook uh, might be handy because to try to turn to all of them uh, won't be practical and to try to memorize them is impossible. So <laughs> I, I would encourage that. And, and if you don't have one this morning, but there, you want the references, I've got them all written down. I can hand them off to you. Um, but we're going to begin with... Uh, just the doctrine of God, and, uh, and we're going to talk about the major things, and, and we'll talk about why they're important. Now, <clears throat> the call of every man, or woman, but we'll just use men, is to be a Christian, to be saved, to become a believing, faithful follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. The call of every Christian is to become a disciple. Not every Christian is a disciple. So a disciple is a student or a follower of someone, in this case it's Jesus, with the intent of being conformed into the same image, of being like him. So every Christian is called to be a disciple. Every disciple is called to be an apostle. Now, before your check engine light goes on and you say, wait a minute, let me explain what I mean by that. I, I don't mean that every one of us, every Christian, every disciple, is called to be an apostle in the sense of the 12 apostles. Or, or even in the sense of like Paul, who, you know, called, who was the great apostle. That's not what I mean. What I mean is this, is that before the apostles were apostles, they were disciples. And that is that they were being trained, they were being raised up, they were being cultivated so that when the time came for their calling to come into full play, they were prepared and equipped to do what it was that they were called to do. So when I say that every disciple is called to be an apostle, what I'm saying to you is that God has a specific intent and purpose for your life, for your Christian experience. He wants to use you. And, and that's going to look different for every one of us. We all have different gifts. We all have different spheres. Every, everything about us is different. So how God is ultimately going to use us is going to be very different. It's going to vary widely. But he wants to use us. And part of that commission that he's going to give to us is that we be properly raised up, properly trained, properly discipled, that we are true followers and that we are conformed somewhat and continually being conformed into the image of Christ. Are you with me? So every 
man is called to be a Christian. Every Christian is called to be a disciple. Every disciple is called to be an apostle. And every apostle is called to be fruitful. Jesus said that herein is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit and that your fruit should remain. And so what does it mean to bear fruit or to be fruitful in our Christianity? It means this. It means that we are making an impact on our world for God in Jesus' name. That's what it means. And that, again, comes in all varieties of shapes and sizes. But that's the whole intent of what God wants to do with our lives while we're here on earth, is that he wants us to make an impact upon this world for God in Jesus' name. Really, that's all this world is good for. When you take a thousand steps back and you just look at it for all that it is, and you think about all that you can do here, all that you can have here, and all that you can be here on this planet, nothing is worth anything except that we make an impact for eternity. Jesus said that, that you know, we are the salt of the earth. He says, if the salt loses its savor, wherewith shall it be salted, that it is the world. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt lose its savor, wherewith shall it, the world, be salted? It is henceforth good for nothing. So Jesus said, this world is good for nothing except that the salt has, can have an impact on it. That's the only thing that this world is good for, is that you and I can make an impact on it. And that's what we've been called to do. But in order to do that, we must first be saved we must be disciples. We must be equipped and sent, commissioned in what he's called us to do. And then we must bear fruit in that thing and make an impact for this world bearing fruit. So how does this happen? Because it doesn't happen by itself. It's not just going to automatically just magically appear. You know that, okay, well, I got saved and one day, just automatically, I'm going to start making an impact and bearing much fruit. It doesn't work that way. Disciples are made. You know, Jesus, why did he take three and a half years with his disciples 24-7? Why did he do that? Because it doesn't happen by itself. He trained them. Then he equipped them. He empowered them by the Holy Spirit. And then he used them. You know, but there was, there's necessary ingredients on our part in order to make that happen. And let me share four ingredients with you uh, quickly here. Number one is education. That's what we're doing right now. It's what we do when we have Bible study, whether it's in church on Sundays or home groups or personal devotions or reading commentaries and books. It's education. It's learning in our mind, bringing our mind in line with who God is and what he teaches. That's, it's just education, and it's necessary. We've got to know who God is if we're going to have a relationship with him and if we're going to serve him, right? So education is essential. That's a part of it, but it's only a part of it. It's not all of it. After education comes interaction. What's interaction? It's prayer. Interaction is having a relationship with God. We can have relationships with each other. We can philosophize and talk you know we can interact amongst ourselves as far as who God is but ultimately it's God that we're following it's Christ that we're being 
conformed into the image of. It's him that we're relating to. And so if we don't have interaction with him, then we can't hope to become like him. We can't hope to hear his call that he has upon our life. We, it's impossible. You absolutely cannot bear fruit in your Christian life if you don't have a relationship and that that relationship is relational. That is, that we're communing with him. We're interacting with the Lord. So prayer, conversation with the Lord is an essential part of us ultimately becoming fruitful. Number three is motivation. There's a motivation. That is, that we have the desire and the drive to do and to become what he's called us to do and to become. Is that we're motivated, that we want to, because people do what they want to, right? Ultimately, I mean, you can, you can be kind of inspired against your will for a season, you know, or you can make a New Year's resolution, you know, and all of those things have a place. They do something, but unless you're motivated to do something, you're not really going to do it. And so if we want to make an impact on the world, then there has to be a motivation, a drive, something in us that's pushing us towards that goal, towards that desire. You know, the, the ultimate motivation in the Christian's experience is the love of God. Faith, the Bible says, works by love. It was the love of Christ, Paul said, that compels me. That's what keeps me going. See, but, but, the, but what does it compel me to do? The, you know, where does it come from is love, but what is it compelling to do? Paul says, wherefore, I labor. I he says, argue or, or persuade men. Is the, that's, he was driven to do it. What would it be that, that would cause Paul the apostle to be stoned and left for dead, to be miraculously raised up, and then walk back into the city where he was just stoned and left for dead and keep preaching? <laughs> he was motivated. He had a clear vision of what he was called to do, of how he was to bear fruit, and he couldn't be diverted from that course and what he was called. So motivation is essential. And then finally, repetitions. What's repetitions? Practice. You cannot become good at or productive in anything that you don't practice. <laughs> I mean, if you think that you can become like Arnold Schwarzenegger simply by reading books about bodybuilding and fitness and nutrition and health and all of that, then you're, you're foolish. It doesn't work like that. You could go to seminars. You, can, you could even meet with a personal trainer. You could have all the education in the world, but if you don't put in the repetitions, it's not going to happen. And so, too, the same thing is true in the Christian life, in the Christian experience. To be fruitful, we must discover what we're called to do, be motivated in it, and then practice. Do it. Where do you see yourself in, I mean, none of us know, and this is kind of rhetorical, it's foolish in a sense, because, you know, we don't know what the future holds for us or what God's going to do. But if I could say to you right now, if you could push a button and, and be completely sanctified, God's work, you know, it's never complete, but as complete as it, it, it could be, and, and I'm doing the thing that God called me to do, what would you be doing? You, yourself, what would you want to do? 
Where do you see yourself in a fruitful... When you look at the kingdom of God in broad spectrum, what would you say of yourself that you would most want to do? Because most likely, that's what it is that God has for you. You say, well, maybe I see myself as a pastor someday. Maybe, you know, for some of us. I, I could see myself in that role, God using me in that role. Well, if that's what you maybe even just think God might be doing, then just start doing it. Don't say, well, I don't have a certificate, or just start doing it. Put in the repetitions. You might not have the form right. You know, you might be, be doing things a little off, but just start doing it on, on the small scale, one-on-one. You say, well, I, I see myself maybe more as an evangelist. I, I want to be an evangelist. I'm impressed by evangelists. I, I, I see the need for evangelists, and I understand the impact that they can make. A, then start doing it. Start practicing one-on-one, -on -one, e even just in your mind with family members, start doing it. Because it's not going to just happen that one day all of a sudden you're Billy Graham or Greg Laurie or someone calls and says, hey, we rented, you know, Yankee Stadium and we want you to come and preach. It doesn't work like that. You grow into that calling, so start doing it. I, I see myself as a teacher someday in some regard. Then do it. Just start doing it. Or a missionary. You, you know, some, some might say, you know what, I, I see myself in, in 20 years of my Christian experience, I see myself in a pew, sitting in church, taking in another Bible study. Hey, just start doing it then. <laughs> because if that's what you want to be in 20 years, then that's all you got to do. Just, just sit in the pew, you know, or something. Or, or, no, I see myself as a critic. I'm a Bible critic, a Christian critic, a cleric critic. So just start doing it. Because whatever you practice, whatever you, that's what you're going to become. That's what you're going to do. And, and so if we're Christians and we're called to be disciples and we're called to be apostles so that we can make an impact and bear fruit in this world, it's not going to happen if we're not engaging in what it takes to bring us to that point. You understand what I'm saying? So education, what we're doing right now, this is some of it, but it's not all of it. It's actually kind of a small fraction of it, but it's essential. Not just education, but interaction, motivation, and repetitions. All of those things are necessary. And so my challenge to you is that you engage, that this not just be, well, I'm going to discipleship, and I hope I become a disciple, an apostle, and fruitful. There's more to it than that. There's a life in Christ, and it's, it's a necessity. Now, doctrine is the backbone of Christian experience, and ultimately it's the foundation or the bedrock of Christian fruitfulness. And so, although you say, okay, the doctrines of the Bible, that sounds kind of dry. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to talk about doctrines, you know? That just sounds so collegiate. It sounds so, you know, professional. What, why would we do that? Because the doctrines of the faith are the essential part of who we are and what we believe. And ultimately, they become the expression of who we are and what we do. If we're going to bring God to the world, then we've got to know God. Right? If we're going to bring the faith into an area or into someone's life, then we've got to be familiar with the faith. It's got to be a part of us because you can't give away something that you don't have. You know, that's, that's just 
plain. That's how it works in the Christian faith. Now, I remember, as all of us do, being in school. You remember? And, 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 and you would be in a class. You would be learning something. And, and it would be tedious in your mind. It would be a challenge for your intellect. And, and you'd be listening and you'd be thinking to yourself, when is this ever going to be useful to me in my life after school? I'm never going to use this, the Pythagorean theorem. <laughs> you know, I'm never going to use this. And, and, and so you, you would think, this is stupid. It's a waste of my time. And it isn't until years later when those things are, it's not as though you, you are, you know, oh, Pythagorean, <laughs> you know, and you're bringing that thing out. But, but there's this whole conglomeration of education that is supporting you in what you are in life later on. And you say, I thank God for those things that I thought I would never use, but in actuality, they manifest themselves every day. So it's true with Bible doctrines. You might say, well, what's the point of understanding the intricacies of the doctrine of God? Well, in and of themselves, okay, maybe it's just knowledge, but as it assimilates itself into who we are as men and as Christians and as disciples and as fruit bearers, it brings depth and, you know, uh, dimension to our expression of God in the thing that he's called us to do. You understand? And so we look at the doctrines of the Bible. And here's what I believe, and this is what I know because, you know, I can testify to you, is that as these things become more understood by you and more loved by you, you're going to be grateful. You'll say, this is good. This is good stuff. This is helping me in my relationship with God and in what he's called me to do. So long introduction, but that's okay because new se segment. And, and here's the other thing I want to say is that I'm not going to rush through this. Uh, if we get through half the today of the doctrine of God, we'll do the other half next week. You know, and we'll, we'll do this correctly uh, and we'll take our time. We won't say, well, this month we're doing God, next month Christ, we'll do them successively, and we'll, we'll you know, there is an order, I have a list of things that we'll go through, you know, but uh, uh, we'll, we'll do it as, as God uh, leads us. Now, the doctrine of God. The Bible never seeks to prove the existence of God. That is not the intent of the Bible at all, to prove it. It, it, it simply affirms that he already exists. Genesis 1.1, it begins, in the beginning, God, right? It doesn't say where he came from. It doesn't talk anything about his character, his nature. It assumes that he already is because he already is. It just affirms his existence. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, though the Bible doesn't seek to prove the existence of God, the Bible talks about the things that do. The Bible says that creation itself proves the existence of God. Psalm chapter 19, verses 1 and 2 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. The heavens declare, that means the heavens, the stars that you see, the creative elements of space, that they are speaking. That's a great poetic term because obviously you go out on a quiet night and the best thing about a quiet night is that it's quiet, right? But what the psalmist is telling us is that that silence is actually preaching a message. It's telling us something. What? It says the glory of God. 
day unto day, the passing of days, utters speech, he says. Night unto night, the passing from one night and folding into the next, he says, utters knowledge, it speaks knowledge. And then it says this, there is no voice nor language where their speech is not heard. It's a universal language. You don't have to speak a special tongue or dialect. <laughs> Anyone who has a set of eyes and a brain can, can hear the message that they're speaking. And it tells us what they're speaking. It speaks of the existence, and it also talks about the character and the nature of God. I could go off on that. Believe me, I love that verse, you know. Where else? Romans chapter 1. Uh, In Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, the Apostle Paul says the same thing in these words. He says this. He says, because that which may be known of God is manifested to them, for God has showed it unto them. And then here's how. He says, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. In other words, the testimony of God's existence in creation is enough to condemn someone to eternal punishment. They don't need the evangelist or the word. Creation itself testifies and speaks enough of who God is that men will be held accountable to him by it. And so the the fact of God's existence, although not proven in Scripture, it is proven in creation, the things that he has made. It's also proven in conscience. The Bible says that God has put it in the consciousness of every person that there is a God and to know right from wrong. And that is why... You know, when you do something wrong, you feel that in your conscience that you know you did something wrong. Even someone who's never been exposed to moral law, if they kill someone, they know that they violated. If they, in any culture, take another man's wife, they know that they violated. They've done something that's wrong because God's put it in the conscience. So the conscience, the creation of conscience in man proves And so so we know that God is, not only through the physical universe, but also through the word of God. God says, I alone tell you things that have not yet happened, so that when they happen, you will know that I am he, that I am God. It's in Isaiah. It's somewhere between chapter 40 and 50. (laughs) Actually, it says it like three times in that 10-chapter segment, you know. Yeah, it's, it says it a few times, you know. But, but, but prophecy in the Bible proves the existence of God. He says, this is how you will know the difference between me and those that are called gods that are not gods, is that I can tell you what will happen before it happens. And he has a 100% track record. And so the word of God testifies of the existence of God and then also the son of God. John chapter 1, verse 18, it says that, that no one has seen the Father at any time except the only begotten Son. He has declared him or demonstrated him or brought him forth. Colossians, or actually John chapter 14, verse 9, Jesus said to Philip, he said, Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Colossians says that he was the express image of his person. 
And so Jesus was the manifestation or the, what visible nature could be placed upon the Father. It was in Christ. So he's revealed by the Son. So he's revealed in creation, the physical universe. He's revealed through the word, prophecy, and also congruency, its alignment, and also through the Son of God, that Jesus was, came as the demonstration of who God is. So God exists. We understand that. We know that. Now, it's not just that God exists. That's not the point. It's not just that he exists, but also that he's intimate. That he came and he created us to be known by us. It wasn't just that there would be this distant deity somewhere out there that is unknowable, untouchable, unreachable. But his desire for us is that we would know him that we would know his nature, that we'd know his character, that there would be an intimacy of understanding not just that he is, but who he is. That's what he wants for us. And so he wants us to be known, or he wants us to know him, and he can be known. Now, he cannot be fully comprehended or understood. In all of eternity, we will not fully comprehend or understand all that there is to know or understand about him. He's big. He's much bigger than what our finite minds can grasp or can understand. But he wants us to understand him, and we can understand him through the attributes that he has that he reveals to us. Now, there are two groups of attributes that, that the Bible tells us about concerning God. There is, first of all, the natural attributes uh, you, you know, and then there are the moral attributes. So there's the natural attributes of God, the things that are just a, a part of his nature, and then there are the moral attributes, the things about, that, that tell us about what he does and that part of who he is. And so the first group, the natural attributes are of his nature. First of all, that God is spirit. That God is spirit, that he is invisible. Again, Jesus said, no man has seen God, that is the Father, at any time. In John chapter 4, verse 24, Jesus said to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, he said that God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, speaking of Christ, it says that he, Jesus, is the express image of, listen, the invisible God. He's invisible. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. The Apostle Paul, in giving benediction and exclaiming praise, you know, in, in mid-sentence or mid-thought, he says this. He says, now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible. The only wise God. He's invisible. He's not seen. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 27, testifying of the faith of Moses. It says that he, not fearing, Moses, not fearing the wrath of the king, but seeing, as seeing, him who is invisible. Great play on words there. As seeing him who is invisible. Believed God. And, and so God is, is spirit, his essence. It's not something that is visible. Now, Christ became the visible aspect of what we could see and understand. That God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Jesus was the express image 
of the Father, that which could be seen and un understood. Now, we understand what it means to interact with an invisible entity. We do that every day, apart from God. We interact with culture. Culture is invisible. We interact with uh, politics. Politics are invisible, but they operate by certain laws, certain rules, certain, uh, um, what's the word? Uh, never mind. Business. There, there are rules of, of business that, that are invisible. and So we do this every day. In fact, part of life is learning how to operate within these realms of invisible things, right? Like, you know, I, I teach my kids. They don't understand that you say please and thank you. They just take because that's their nature. And so they have to learn this invisible system. And that's part of child rearing. Same thing is true in the spiritual realm. God is invisible. And so his attributes are invisible. His kingdom is invisible. His ways are invisible. They're real. They're tangible by faith. But they're not seen, they're not visible. And so we learn to interact, we learn to operate within the boundaries and the standards of God's kingdom, even though we can't see them. So God is invisible, he's spirit, he's real. Not only is he spirit, but the Bible also tells us that God is changeless. The second attribute of God's nature is that he's changeless. Psalm 102 Verse 26 says, Of old thou hast laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment. As a vesture, thou shalt change them, and they shall be changed. But you are the same and thy years have no end. He is the same. He doesn't change. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6 says, For I am the Lord, I change not. <laughs> I don't think it gets any clearer than that. <laughs> Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, For I am the Lord, I change not. Concerning God the Son, Jesus Christ, it says in Hebrews chapter 13, it says, Jesus Christ, the same, yesterday, today, and forever. He is absolutely consistent. In fact, if he changed, it would speak to the fact that he is imperfect. But if he is perfect, perfect doesn't change. It's perfect. And so he's unchangeable. Now, what does that mean, that he doesn't change? It means that God is not evolving. God is not changing as time goes by, conforming himself to what creation is doing or what culture dictates. It means that he's not current or relevant to culture and society. It means that he, he doesn't change his standards based upon what men say or what people think or what science declares. Now, he is not relevant to culture and society, but listen carefully, he is relevant to men. And what I mean by that is this, is that he is, he makes a difference. That's what relevant means. It, it means it, it matters, right? He, he doesn't care about culture and society, what they say, but he is relevant to men. I, I firmly believe that the reason why many people do not come to church and do not know God, it's not because they're against God. 
And it isn't because they're against the Bible, and it isn't because they hate it. it, it they, they simply think that it's irrelevant. It doesn't mean, mean anything to my life. It doesn't make a difference. So they're not against him, but they don't see a need for him. But God is relevant to man. And, and so it, though, though we never put God in the category of relevant in culture and society, we always place God as relevant to man because he meets man where man is. He doesn't conform to man, but he brings man to where he is. And so God doesn't change. His opinions don't vary. He, he doesn't say in Exodus chapter 20, thou shalt not kill, and then modify that in 2013 and say, now it's okay. He doesn't say don't covet to the Apostle Paul, but for that guy over there, well, I know his heart. And so it's okay if he lusts, because I know his heart. How many of you have heard that before? Well, God knows my heart. <laughs> I know that the Bible says, but God knows my heart. No, 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 no. His opinions don't change. He's changeless. His decrees and his statutes are firm and fixed. His word doesn't go out of style. His word and his mind are not subject to change. None of those things change. Now, what's the implication of that in your life and in mine? It's this. It's exactly what David said in the psalmists and the saints of old, that he is my fortress. The idea behind a fortress is that it's a safe stronghold that cannot be taken. If he doesn't change and he's sound and he's anchored, then that's where my life is placed. That's where my life is safe. He's my fortress. He's my rock, the Bible says. He's my strong tower of deliverance. That's what it says. The Bible calls it a foundation, a sure foundation. It means that he is steadfast and he is consistent. And that brings me great comfort. Because the Bible tells us that he has plans for you and for me. And if he doesn't change, then guess what else doesn't change? The plans that he has for you and for me. The Bible says that he shows favor towards us. Well, if he doesn't change, then that means that that favor that he's given and placed upon our lives, that's not going to change. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't shift like the sea. The Bible says that he has given us gifts, talents, abilities. Romans chapter somewhere, 14, I think, it says that the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. He doesn't take it back. He doesn't change. And he promises that he's going to work within your life, conforming you into the image of his son, bringing you to completion and perfection. And if he doesn't change, then that means that that plan is not going to change. We change. We change 17 times in the 12 or 14 hours of a day that we're awake. He doesn't change. And when we ascribe our attributes to him, we err. Because we think, well, I don't feel close to God. And so he must have left me. No, the Bible says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He doesn't change his mind. See, and that's great confidence for you and for me, to understand, to live in the light of the fact that God doesn't change. Number three, he is omnipotent. The word omnipotent means all-powerful. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, God himself revealed himself in this light to Abraham. After walking with Abraham for several years, probably close to 25 years at that point in Abraham's life, God appears to him when he's 99 years old and he says this. He says, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. 
I am almighty God. The word means all-powerful God, nothing impossible. Genesis 18, 13, and 14, when God told Abram that Sarah, who was 90 years old, was going to have a baby, Sarah overheard and laughed. She was in the tent and she heard, yeah, your wife is going to conceive and have a child about this time next year. And Sarah heard it inside. And, ah! You know, it, it could be heard. And the Lord heard the laugh. They're visiting with Abraham. And he asks the question. The Lord says this. He says, did Sarah laugh? Is anything too hard for the Lord? There's nothing that's too hard for him. In fact, Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 17, the prayer of Jeremiah. Listen to Jeremiah's prayer. Jeremiah 32, 17, he says, Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power an outstretched arm, and there is nothing too hard for you. Now you say, well, wait, that was just the prayer, the expression of a man. Listen to the answer that came from the Lord. Same chapter, Jeremiah 32, 27, the Lord says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Nothing. He is all-powerful. He can do whatever he wants to do. He is omnipotent. Now, wait a minute. Although there is nothing he can't do, there are things he won't do. He will not do anything that's inconsistent with his nature. That would make him imperfect. And so he won't violate who he is because he can. Because he's perfect. He cannot sin. That is, violate his moral character. That would make him imperfect. He, he can't violate or nullify his word, what he's spoken, what he's revealed. He will not go against it. That would make him a liar. Hebrews chapter 6, Abraham, or speaking of Abraham and the promise that was given to Abraham, it says that the confidence and the anchor of Abraham's faith was that he knew that God couldn't lie. By these things, that, that it was impossible for God to lie. He cannot lie. And so for God to violate his word would make God a liar. So he won't violate his word. He could. He could do all things, but he won't. He cannot do what he says that he won't do. If the Bible says that God will not favor the wicked, then he won't. <laughs> he, he can't do what he said that he won't do. And, and here's the ultimate answer. I am going to answer an age-old question. Write it down, remember it, because you will be asked this question, and I'm giving you the answer right now. Here it is. Are you ready? God cannot make a rock so big that he can't move it. <laughs> that is absolutely true. God cannot make a rock so big that he can't move it. Here's why. Because he never said in the Bible that he wouldn't move a rock that was too large. <laughs> if the Bible said, I will not move a rock that is beyond a certain size, then there he could make a rock so big he couldn't move it. But since he didn't say that, then the answer is, he, he, I know it's stupid, but, but you get the idea. He's all-powerful. And here's the point. You say, well, wait a minute. That's impossible. That's impossible. That, wait, 
God, can God make a rock so big that he can't move it? He's making the rock, he's moving it. That's it. Exactly. It's impossible. He's the God that can do the impossible. What is not possible with men, Jesus said, is possible with God. He can do all things. He's omnipotent. Now, what does that mean for your life and for mine? There are many things that are impossible with us. We can't control our own flesh. We can't control our own tongue. James said the tongue can no man tame. We can't control our desires. We can't control our circumstances. We can't control our future. We can't change our past. There's, everything is impossible with us. Nothing is impossible with God. And that brings us hope because we are in him. We're sons and daughters of him, and he wouldn't tell us that if he didn't avail his omnipotence to us. I didn't say that he would make nothing impossible for us, but nothing is impossible for him. And when we are with him, that's a multitude. You understand? And so it's essential that we understand the omnipotence of God for our Christian experience. Our problem is that we try to attach our limitations to him. And if it's too big for us, we think it's too big for God. Well, there's no medical research that can cure this. This is a hopeless situation. It's not hopeless with God. The world doesn't work this way that, you know, A situation plus B effort equals C outcome. It, it, that, that, that law doesn't work in this world. It works with God. Because all things are possible with him. Hezekiah was facing unmovable army. The Assyrians, they were too great. The threat came from the Assyrian king, we're going to wipe you out. Hezekiah brought the letter into the temple. He laid it before the Lord, and he said, Lord, it is nothing for you to help, whether with many or with those that have no power. All things are possible with you. And that night, it says that an angel of the Lord went through the host of the Assyrians and wiped out 185,000 Assyrian men. No battle, no problem. God took care of it. Nothing is too hard for God. He's omnipotent. So we can cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. He's omnipotent. He's also omniscient. That means all-knowing. Now, this is both comforting, convicting, tormenting. <laughs> He's all-knowing. It means that he sees all visible things. 2 Chronicles 16.9 says that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout all the earth. The eyes of the Lord are upon men. It says that he beholds the wicked and the good. He sees all visible things. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12, it says, For the word of God is quick and powerful, living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joy and marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And all things are naked and opened before the eyes of him with whom we deal. He sees everything. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. He, see, he hears all spoken things. Luke chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. Jesus says this, he says, 
Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hidden that shall not be known. Therefore, whatsoever you have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light. And that which you have spoken in the ear in closets shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. It means that there's nothing that we speak or that is spoken anywhere in any room or any corner of this world that God does not hear and that is not recorded. He hears all things. He knows all invisible things, not just visible, not just spoken, but he knows all invisible things. That includes thoughts. He knows thoughts. That's scary, isn't it? That it isn't just what we say, it isn't just what we do, but he also knows, he sees our thoughts. Psalm chapter 139, listen to these verses, 1 through 3, Psalm 139. He says this, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my downsitting and my uprising. You understand my thoughts afar off. You compass my path, my lying down, and you are acquainted with all of my ways. He knows our thoughts. In Ezekiel chapter 8, the prophet Ezekiel is taken into, in a vision, to a strange place. It's the temple. And as he's brought into the temple, he sees a hole in the wall. And God says, go in. And so he peels back the bricks, the mortar, the stone, and he, 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 he works his way through this hole in the wall of the temple. And when he gets in, he sees all kinds of grotesque and pornographic images all over the wall. And he says, oh, Lord, what is this? What, what is this? Why have you brought me here? What am I looking at? And you know what God says? He says, this is the chambers of imagery in the mind of my priests. What are the chambers of imagery? You know. <laughs> I, I do this with my kids. I'll say, hey, kids, picture in your mind, close your eyes, and, and, and picture a school bus. And, that, and I say, can you see it? And they say, yeah, Dad, we know what a school bus looks like. How do you know what a school bus looks like? Because you've seen one, and your mind records everything you've ever seen in the chambers of imagery. And you can recall them anytime you want. And God said to Ezekiel, look at what's going on in the chambers of imagery of my priests, those that are to represent me. The point is, God sees everything. He knows the ins and outs of what's in our minds, our thoughts. Not just the thoughts, but he knows the secrets of our hearts. Psalm chapter 44, verses 20 and 21. It says, if we have forgotten the name of our God or stretched out our hands to a strange God, shall not God search this out? For he knoweth the secrets of the heart. Our deepest longings, our deepest desires, our greatest wounds, tragedies, our victories. He knows the secrets of the heart. And he knows every action. Proverbs chapter 5 verse 21. It says, for the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all of his goings. So everything that we do, he sees all of it. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. Now, this is convicting, and it's condemning. It affords us this. This is what it does for us. This is why this is beneficial. 
Because here's what we're allowed to do. We can be perfectly honest with the Lord. We, we can't hide anything from him. Because he, he like, what, what did David say, Psalm 139, that verse that we just read? David said, search me and know me. In other words, God, here, God, here's what I want to do. I want to open up my heart, and I want you to look at it, and I want you to tell me what's going on. <laughs> you think about it, like, that almost doesn't make sense. Like, wait, someone else is going to tell me what's going on in my heart? Yeah, yeah. God knows our hearts more than we do, more than we know ourselves. And so we are allowed to be honest. It means that we can confess sin and, and we're not letting God in on something that he didn't know. <gasps> you did what? You know. <laughs> He's like, yeah, I know. I knew it before I saved you. <laughs> I, knew you I knew you would be here right now then. And here's, here's what happens then. And this is why it's comforting. Convicting because, oh, gosh, you see everything. Comforting, here's why. Because perfect honesty is always met with perfect grace. Psalm 103, we've got to wrap up, I know. Psalm 103, it says, Like as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those that fear him. He has not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our transgressions. But as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And the Bible says that he knows our frame and he considers that we are dust. He knows what we are. He's not surprised. He's not shocked. He already knows. And he chose to save us anyway. That's grace. Now that doesn't give us license to sin. It should give us power over sin. Because well, his omniscience, now I, I have his omnipotence, his all power, Lord, Cleanse me, David said, from secret sins, from secret faults. Oh, goodness. He's omnipresent, number five. He's omnipresent, which means he's everywhere. You can read it on your own. Psalm 139 again. That's a great psalm for all of these things, by the way. Psalm 139, verses 7 through 12. It says that there's nowhere we can flee from him. There's nowhere where God is not. He's everywhere. And no one on this planet that is living, has ever experienced total separation from God. No one yet, not even the unsaved man, has experienced total separation from God. I believe that during the tribulation period when the church is removed, the Spirit will still be present in part. But when the church is removed and that whole element of God's life and God's light is taken off the planet, the darkness and the misery and the literal hell that will be experienced on earth in that time will be like nothing that's ever been. Because man has not yet known what it means to be completely alienated, completely separated from God. That's what hell is. That's what makes hell hell, the fact that God is not there. The fact that his favor is completely turned against. His wrath is completely revealed. He's omnipresent. And then God is eternal. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28, he says, I am the everlasting God. When God revealed himself to Moses, he called himself the I am. Not the I was, not the I will, but he is the I am. Eternal, eternity only exists in the present. Did you know that? 
Eternity only exists in the present, and God is in the present. He says, I am. He also was, and he will be. I am the first, I am the last, the Alpha and the Omega. He says, but I am. The other question that people will ask us is this. Not just, can God make a rock so big he can't move it, but the other one is, if God created the heavens and the earth, and God made man and everything, you know, that we interact with, who made God? That's the other question that you'll get. Here's the answer to that one. The answer is no one. The answer is he is eternal. He always was and he always will be. He had no beginning and he has no ending. He is the beginning of time, but time is not the beginning of eternity. Do you realize that time is, is, is uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it, it is related to the physical creation, the existence that we operate within. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Beginning speaks of time. There was no time before Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, that was the starting point of time. God created the heavens, that's space, and the earth, that's matter. So time, space, and matter were all created in Genesis 1-1. They didn't exist before that. And time, as we know it, is a byproduct of the, what, the, the revolution. Is it revolution? or what, what is it when the earth spins? Please, what? Huh? Yeah, rotation. Thank you. The rotation and the revolution. That's time right? Rotation is a day, revolution is a year, and, you know, moons and all that stuff is months, and all, all, so that's time. It's part of the creation. You get outside of this universe that's created by God, and what is time there? It's called eternity. It has no beginning, it has no ending. And so again, so for someone to ask the question, who created God, what they're doing is they're making God a byproduct of our universe, not the creator of it. He's eternal. And he wants, he's the eternal God in our lives as well. Now, eternity coexists with time because we're in time, right? And eternity still exists. But eternity always touches time right now. You understand? That that's where eternity and time meet is right now. Not yesterday or tomorrow. It's right now. You know, we don't have time to get into it. I'd love to. We'll continue next week. We'll talk about the moral attributes of God. You know, these were the natural. Next time, we'll talk about the moral attributes of God. And I, I pray you don't get bored and say, oh, it's doctrine. I know these things, you know. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's good to get uh, reacquainted or, you know, re, I don't know, add dimension to our understanding of who God is. Any questions?
The question is for uh, those of you in the back, Tom has to visit uh, a man this afternoon, 48 years old. Uh, you said he's been married for three years. Married for three years, and he's going to die in a few days. And uh, how, 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 how do you, he's Catholic, right, you said? And how do you, how do you answer someone's questions? He, he doesn't have the, the kind of peace and assurance that, that a Christian would have you know, in that situation. And so what do you say, you know, to that? And, uh, you know, first of all, you pray. <laughs> oh, God, help me. I'm going into this thing. Because what, you know, in, in one sense, what can you say? I mean, you're not in that circumstance. So anything you say sounds cliche. You, you know what I mean? Um, but, you know, the answer is always for us is that God knows best. You know, he's absolutely sovereign, Right? So he, he's aware uh, of everything that's happening, and he knows what's best, even though it doesn't make sense to us. You know what I mean? Now, how you say that, you need the Holy Spirit of God to, to give you wisdom uh, supernaturally, because, you know, I mean, put yourself in that position. You know what I mean? Like Job, he, he said, miserable counselors are ye, <laughs> you know, because when you're, when you're going through that, you know, it's so hard to even hear things, you know. But as far as, like, our understanding goes, you know, I, I always think of, um, uh, he, remember Hezekiah, I just told you about him, the guy who prayed and, and God came in and wiped out that whole army. Uh, a little while after that, he got sick and he found out it was terminal. And, it, and the Bible says that he, he went to Isaiah, the prophet, and he said, pray for me. What, what's the deal here? And, 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 and the Lord told Isaiah to tell him he's going to die. And so Isaiah told him, he said, look, you're going to go. You know, and it says that Hezekiah wept like a bird. That's what the, the words it literally uses, that he wept. Oh, Lord, I don't want to die. I'm not ready. You know, this whole thing. And so God spoke to Isaiah and said, okay, go back to Hezekiah and tell him, all right, I've heard your prayer. I've given you 15 more years. You got 15 years. And so Isaiah goes, tells Hezekiah. Hezekiah, uh, you know, recovers, and he gets 15 more years. Right? And he thinks, wow, this is great. God heard my prayer. I'm alive. Two things happened in those 15 years. Number one is that he sired the most wicked king Israel ever had <laughs> that brought judgment of God upon the nation. And number two, he made a foolish decision to bring the king of Babylon into the temple and showed him all of the gold, which, which also hastened the judgment of the whole nation. God's best was for Hezekiah to pass off the scene at that time, you, you know? <laughs> God allowed 15 more years, but they weren't what was best. You, you understand? And so that you can't probably share that with this guy. I'm not, so I'm not telling, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> but, but the point is that, you know, what we know is that God knows what's best. You know what I mean? Like that's where our faith is, is that, is that, hey, this earth is not where it's at. He that has the Son has life, and he that does not have the Son does not have life. You know, do you have the Son? That's what matters, you know? And, and for us that do, we know what he chooses, that's what's best. Though we don't understand it, though he doesn't owe us an explanation, you know? Does it make sense? Tough, tough, tough stuff. Welcome to my world. <laughs> you know?
columns. Yes. 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 Yeah, and you know that. You you live in you live in that world, right? Yes. Yeah, never lost, right? Doc? And A28. Yeah, and that's tough. There's no comfort sometimes, you know, especially like I think of myself. You know, I, I, I take me, Lord, you know, but my kids, my wife, those things, you know, what, what, what I'm leaving behind, the mess that might be, you know, those things would bother me even still, you know. Anything else? Other questions? I know we're late, a little late. Sorry. Heard the name, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Anybody not hear what he said that wants to hear, just the, to write down the name, Louis Giglio? How great is our God? YouTube? Uh, 
Praise the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. I, I has, there's another one for you in Romans. It's in Romans 8 too. It says, I has not seen, ear has not heard. Neither, no, no, that's not the one I'm thinking of. It's this, it's, sorry, no, no. This is, the one I'm thinking of is this, that Paul said, for I perceive that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. You know, and that, like what you're saying, like we have no clue, no clue what awaits. <laughs> All right, well, thanks for your patience, men. Uh, I know I, I ran a little late today. I'll try to car- carve that down, keep it on time. But um, if you just maybe partner up with someone before you leave and just pray for each other, take a minute. doesn't take long. And, um, and have a good one. Be blessed.